1: Welcome to New Books in American Studies. I'm your host, Michael Amico. And today, we're joined by Russell Shorto, author of the new book, Revolution Song, a story of American freedom, just out from Norton. Revolution Song is a history of many revolutions. Kaleidoscopic turns through six individual stories. And with each turn, these stories continuously reemerge and recolor the text. There is Cornplanter, a leader of the Senecan Indians. And George Germain, who would lead the British's war strategy during the American Revolution. Margaret Moncrief Coughlin, the daughter of a British major. Then there's the always worried and weary George Washington. And here's Venture Smith, an African slave who eventually purchased his freedom in Connecticut. And finally, Abraham Yates, the self-taught rabble rouser from Albany who helped shape the politics of New York and the country. These six stories together turn to make one revolution. Russell Shorto is a prize-winning historian whose previous work includes Amsterdam, A History of the World's Most Liberal City, and The Island at the Center of the World, the Epic Story of Dutch Manhattan and the Founding Colony that Shaped America. From 2008 to 2013, Russell was director of the John Adams Institute in Amsterdam, and he is currently a senior scholar at the New Netherland Institute, as well as a contributing writer at the New York Times Magazine. His books have been published in 14 languages. Russell Shorto, welcome to the conversation. Hi, Michael. Thank you for having me. So there have been many, many histories of the revolution, and I'm wondering what brought you to write another one. Of course, what distinguishes it for me is that you're focusing on uh, these individual lives as they are lived on the ground. And in the subtitle of the book is the word freedom. And so you're interested in that in some way, but not as, as purely an intellectual historian, but trying to capture something of that lived experience. So how did you arrive at that approach for this book? Uh,
0: yeah, the, I'm glad you see it that way because that's what I had in mind from the beginning years ago when I came up with this idea. Um, I did not set out thinking the world needs another book about the American Revolution. It was really that I write narrative history, which to me is storytelling about people in their time and place. And I was conscious of the fact that most books about the period tend to be about the men in the powdered wigs, the leaders, the elite. And I thought, what what if it was possible for me to write a book that wove together stories of a handful of lives from birth to death so that we saw all of these people come of age and evolve and grapple with this thing, the American Revolution, and then grapple with the aftermath of it. People from different walks of life. I knew I wanted at least one woman. I knew I had to have a slave in there. Um, And it it turned out to be a challenge. And I spent about two years uh, sort of auditioning people for roles in the book. Um, And because I wasn't sure that I could find, um, people with these different backgrounds whose lives were fleshed out in documentary uh, source material uh, well enough because those men in the powdered wigs tended to have lots of, uh, letters and, and other documentary evidence of their lives, but especially for someone like a slave or a native American, uh, not so much. Uh, so it took about two years and, and going through, I don't know, 150, maybe 200 different possible lives to include, uh, before I assembled a group of people who I thought, you know, this gives me a range. It's not a scientific kind of uh, 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 overview of all of the, the the major representative groups or anything like that. Um, uh, but I, I came up with six people, and I it was important to me also that I find people for whom there were overlaps. I wanted to. I wanted the book to read as one story, as one narrative, not as you know, discrete chapters. So that was part of the challenge, and I ended up finding people who um, have what to me felt like enough linkages to make it read as as a one whole.
1: That's so interesting. Obviously, there are connections. Plot-wise, that some of these people come into contact with each other or with someone who was with the other person, and so it's an, it's a nice feeling for the reader. Um, but in, in many ways, the 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 largest connections were the emotional dynamics uh, for each quote unquote character or, or historical subject. Emotional dynamics that that sort of cut across time and space, even you know in, into our present. Uh, and, and for me is the, is the reason that you're, that the narrative is, is so easy to identify with, uh, that particular vocabularies change, but, um, there are these, these common urges for, for connection, uh, with other people, uh, for the defense of one's sense of self that feels damaged. And so I'm wondering how did those sort of emotional dynamics emerge as you were choosing these people and then choosing the moments in which to, through which to write this.
0: Yeah, um there I I know from this is my 6th book. So I I know from experience that once you get into a subject, uh serendipity emerges. I mean, you will see things that you didn't know were there uh, from the outset. And uh there were these sort of thematic connections between the different subjects who uh that that um jumped out at me once I was really immersed in the material. Um and as you were suggesting, when you're writing, I think one uh, aspect of writing all of these from birth to death is that as you're weaving from b- back and forth from one to the other, you see natural life uh, connections. Uh, the childhoods uh, overlap in, in sometimes standard, obvious ways, and sometimes in kind of surprising ways. So that uh, um, George Washington and... Venture Smith, who was born Brotir Furo in Africa and then captured and sold into slavery, both of them lost, both of them were raised with a, a different but really um, quite overlapping kind of honor code or honor culture. Um, and uh, Venture Smith, uh, as Brotier Furrow was the son of a, a local prince and he had a certain way of uh, understanding what, he, what, what life was and what was expected of him, and it was kind of similar to George Washington's. And it turns out both of them lost their fathers at about the same age, and in different, very different ways, both had expectations for their future uh, uh, completely altered. Um, so things like that, uh, as, and then as people get older and struggle with, marriage and children and those kinds of issues, uh, then there are overlaps as well.
1: Yeah, it did strike me, and I know you mentioned this in the book, that, uh, well, at least two characters, maybe three or four, you could argue, are essentially sort of fatherless, or that the the father is not present in a way that, um, well, is certainly absent in a way that is Problematically present for a lot of these characters, but in, instead of saying you know w- what this necessarily meant for them, you are interested in showing the kind of socio-psychic implications um, through these these wonderfully stark portraits of recognition that the characters that the s- historical subjects go through, such as when 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 young uh, Margaret um, is over studying in uh, in Britain and she realizes uh, that her father comes to visit her and then leaves and that she realizes that she both adores and hates her father, you say, through these sort of comings and goings. And are those just dynamics that emerged as you were putting these uh, stories together? or, Or did you go out in terms of trying to find sort of moments of recognition like that to drive the plot forward?
0: No, those things just happened as I was going through it. And as I say, I think they emerged because there are certain life experiences that not every single person, but many people tend to share. Uh, and as you say, the, it turned out that there were several of the people who, whose life and whose early life is really shaped by their relationship with their father or the absence of their father, their father's death, two of them, their father dies uh, when they're 10 or 11. Uh, one corn planter, the Seneca, his mother was an important Seneca woman. His father was kind of a ne'er-do-well rum trader, a, a, a white man from upstate New York, uh, who, you know, spends little time in the village and then leaves. And so he's this absent figure in his life. And, and corn planter <clears throat> uh, feels that absence enough that when he's old enough, he he walks about 300 miles to find to confront this man and say, you know, who are you? Why are you? Why are you not in my life? Uh, And, you know, I I certainly couldn't have planned for things like that. But as I'm working through the material, you see those things happen and then you realize, oh, there are these interesting connections. So I I sort of highlight that a bit, but I'm not, you know, I'm trying not to sort of bang you over the head with it to say, look, see, these people are going through similar things. I'm just hoping that as a reader, you're feeling uh, those kinds of connections.
1: Yeah, I certainly felt them. I and I, I think it's important to highlight because, uh, many historians, um, well, I would say more academic historians or people in Wisconsin, the Academy, um, don't necessarily uh, f- look for those things or know how to find them. And so I think it's important to, to recognize the the power of the emotional, uh, dynamics. I, I was actually mesmerized by, by corn planters, uh, desire need really to sort of find his father see his father reunite with his father and there's that wonderful moment later on where he's uh, uh leading a raid and he raids the town uh, in which his father is living and captures his father and then you know a little bit later uh turns to him and, and tries to sort of ask if he knows who, who who he is whether he knows that this is his son um and again it's something that just cuts right, right into the present. Um, so people might be wondering then with all these little examples and just us talking about the emotional dynamics, what does this have to do with the revolution? Um, and what were they fighting for or how did they articulate what they were fighting for these people in many different ways? Um, and what that has to do with, you know, these, these feelings that you're trying to capture. So what is the relationship between those dynamics and the ideas of the time, so to speak?
0: Yeah, well, uh, the um, ultimately, I, the book is about freedom, which is, I guess you would say, what any book about the American Revolution is going to concern itself with. But uh, I um, approach it, I, I, I stay with the people in their lives. And I guess I am assuming in the book a certain uh knowledge maybe not uh, uh detailed knowledge about the events of the period but i assume that every, the reader has an idea in mind of what the era of the american revolution was so i don't feel the need to this isn't a comp- this isn't a textbook and i'm not trying to cover every battle that sort of thing i'm really staying with these people and <clears throat> you are getting an alternate view because you're so focused on different arenas, like a slave's view, uh, a, a teenage girl's view. Um, but since one, since one of the people is George Washington, when we're with him, we're on more or less familiar territory. So there is that kind of familiar sense of the revolution. Um, and the freedom theme plays out. I, um, My expertise really is in the world of the 1600s, the intellectual world in Europe, uh, when uh, the Dutch Enlightenment spawned the later European Enlightenment and American Enlightenment, and 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 that at that moment, starting then in the 1620s and 1630s, you you get this new focus on people looking into microscopes and telescopes and <clears throat> and gathering this and gathering information and seeing the world and understanding that knowledge is really something that every human being can acquire it doesn't come from received wisdom and therefore they come up with this notion that every human being is equally valuable and therefore this notion of freedom uh starts to take hold and going back starting at that period i really came at the revolution from a century before and seeing this freedom wave build and grow uh and it's a much bigger thing really than what we Associate the way we associate freedom with the American Revolution. What the revolutionaries did was take this force that was underway and channel it, or focus one part of it. This notion of political freedom, but all kinds of freedoms were uh, being talked about as as early as the 1640s in Europe. People were arguing that women, that girls, had just as much right to education as boys, for example. Uh, slavery was being debated and, and considered an immoral institution a century before the revolution was fought. Uh, so all of these things were in the air, and therefore these people in their different backgrounds and different walks of life were struggling uh, with uh, different types of freedom, which overlapped with one another. And I I try to let that play in their lives without sort of stepping out and and. Telling you the reader, see, pay attention to this. I just want to i I, I would like the reader to just feel that
1: right. And you also d- introduce these ideas, you know, from the bottom up, so to speak, or through the their discovery by these historical uh, subjects so So even though you mention a few times um these enlightenment individuals, Descartes and Hobbes, and other philosophers, and of course, their ideas of of freedom and all sorts of, of political philosophy has been written about you know, ad nauseum and how, how we misunderstand and we can re-understand. Um, and, but what I take from, from your narrative uh, again is, is that it, what's going on in this moment is that people had a new language to articulate, uh, their own, own freedom. And, and you show in, in some episodes, the kind of grasping, um, uh, for that language and the acquisition of that language. So I'm thinking of when Abraham Yates, um, in uh, Albany, does his there's a moment where he's doing his own philosophical reading and education, and you can based on everything that comes before that in the story, um you I felt it as not you saying these were the ideas of the time, and here's an example, Abraham Yates, but it's that um these ideas become in the moment uh, as he's reading and as we're reading the text a way for him to assert a sense of self that has felt in many ways sort of blighted and bested uh in the past, and it's that feeling of of finding a language to assert a, a more cohesive uh self against what he feels as as someone who was maybe pushed aside um it's that feeling of finding that language that is the driver of the story here
0: yeah i tried to um uh, uh, as I, as you say i i'm we're dealing with issues that go back to to the uh, sort of philosophical currents of a century or more before, but they do, I mean, in that age, in that moment, people felt these things uh, in their lives and not just in the way um, that we associate with uh, the revolution, but uh, in the case of Yates, he was really, he was one of the first people in America to, pick up the writings of John Locke and apply them. This is in the 1750s during the, uh, the French and Indian War and apply them to the rights and the needs of uh, British subjects in America. And um, uh, Margaret Moncrief, when she, uh, it, it would be anachronistic to talk about, you know, a woman's movement in the 1770s, but there was a cutting edge of that. Uh, and it was the the notion of forced marriage. and people. At the time, at the time the revolution was breaking out, were writing articles and writing plays about, based on this notion that a woman ought not to be forced to marry against her will, and that's exactly what happens to her. Her father um, uh, forces her; he's a British officer, and he forces her to marry another British officer whom she despises, and uh, she tries to resist and can't, and uh, the rest of her life then is spent grappling with this thing that she'd been forced with and she is someone who had she I think she took to heart these notions of a woman's independence and she really tried to enact it and it was too early there wasn't really society wasn't ready for independent women so her her story ultimately becomes a tragedy um and uh so so I'm I'm glad that you hit on that because I was trying to to do that, to show through these people's lives rather than tell you, uh, the way freedom works or doesn't work for them.
1: Right. And it's almost as if, uh, the personal examination that Margaret goes through based on the idea of forced marriage that she's reading about or hearing about or seeing in a play that, that personal examination is almost a method of the, of the book of your book itself of of history. Um, and again, thinking about uh, the individual's experience through the language in which they are given um, at the time, and and I have to say that that uh, this really does sort of open up uh, um, a logic of of writing in history that is that pushes against uh, sort of the powdered wig uh, figures and a mode of, of of history highlighting the the men in power. It cuts against that, even though you actually are writing about men in power. So we have George Washington, we have George Germain. I mean, two, two well, George uh, Jermaine in, in, in uh, England, very, very high powered, um, quintessentially powdered wig man and, and George Washington, but, but, but figures who, who are, are, are men with, with power um, about whom th- there's been a lot written. Uh, yet, nonetheless, I feel like the questions that say Margaret is asking, and or, or Abraham Yates, or even Venture Smith, people who are who are not as privileged in society at the time, or who work work to gain more privilege. Um, nonetheless, these other men who are powerful are you're still presenting as as vulnerable.
0: Uh, yeah, well, I'm glad that, you, um, that that comes through. Uh, I. George Washington was the last of these six people who I settled on. And you might say he's the most obvious person of the whole era. Um, And maybe for that reason, I didn't, you know, I avoided it or didn't see it. Um, But when I did, it all kind of fell into place. Because for one thing, he is the one who ends up sort of connecting. He connects with most all of the others. Um, And in addition, it occurred to me that by... Having that a figure at that level, the most famous man in America, and putting him more or less on the same level with all the other, with a slave and and a Native American and so on, that was kind of making a statement without having to make it. You know, you're just seeing them all as people going through the the basic struggles of life, um, and the same with George Germain. And and the point about the the men in the powdered wigs versus everyone else. That in a way speaks to, you know, there's for a long time there have been two kind of competing ways of approaching the American Revolution and and what it came from. Uh the uh the, the kind of great men approach that says it was really these men who met in these rooms and came, you know, developed these great ideas that came from Europe and applied them, and that's where the force of the revolution came from. And the other the kind of left-wing theory says, no, it's really, uh, it was uh, people in the streets who were building this, this re- anger and resentment and this demand for freedom, and that's where it came from. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm not in the academy, and I don't really have a dog in that fight. I think both of those are true. And I I, I guess I thought that by including people of from all backgrounds, including the men in the powdered wigs. I was able to kind of have it both <laughs> have it both ways.
1: Yeah, in some ways, actually, it, it almost seems that those those choices, uh, say the the you know the, the the great man history, and then the sort of uh, you know people from the everyday, a ground up sort of history that they're false that they're almost false choices because because w- what you show is that well, what's uniting them is is their own individual. Uh, need for freedom in whatever terms that is for them, and so it's really not one or the other. It's actually about making each person, whether they're in the room with the men or on the streets, a human being. <laughs> and once you do that, then you begin to feel something much larger through through the individual. Because you know the way you present George Washington. And I to be honest with you, I, I have not read the many many George Washington biographies, um, and maybe some of them gesture towards this. But is as a very is a very vulnerable man, um, and so and so there are these wonderful moments. Uh, for example, when uh, he uh, he wants to show his worth and value as a leader, as as he does early on, in, in, in the eyes of the British, uh, to get a, a commission in the army. Um, but then, in the eyes of the American leaders of the Continental Congress. He, he wants to show his worth and value by, by simply taking a coach and livery instead of riding a horse. And, and, you know, it's easy to, to put that in a kind of, well, you know, this was important for the time to present himself, blah, 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 blah. But what you have done is to show like how that is, is a need for him to begin to, to kind sort of cover over any sense of insecurity or deal with any sense of insecurity he's feeling. And it's that insecurity that unites him with all these quote unquote everyday people.
0: And I think that um, the, the approach where you're <clears throat> covering the whole life, that allows you to see patterns. So, you know, if you just looked at the coach and livery story, you'd say, OK, well, maybe it meant this or maybe it meant that. But if you see if you're going through all of his earlier life, you see this pattern of this need to uh, as a, as a boy, you know, ordering, you know, to his tailor exact specifications for the kind of suit he wants and the, and the importance that he himself places on the way I look, the way I present myself and, and this determination to, and, and underneath that is this, you know, keen awareness of losing his father and losing opportunities, not being able to go to England and get a proper education. And, and so, then you you it seems to me you're able to build this life with all of its vulnerabilities and and its and its causes and and effects so to speak
1: right yeah, I mean you even say early on, I think that um washington felt could have felt emasculated um that he was t- certainly taking advantage of economically by the British uh, uh, with the, his, his planting, uh, his farm, his plantation. Um, but, but also what else was going on in the moment, as you say, just pay attention to the life story, but the inability to have children and that these things must be, I don't even want to say thought together, but they must be felt together. You know, that there's not, it's not a private fact and a public fact, but it's a fact that these things are leading to the same feeling of, of impotence and emasculation.
0: Yeah, and with Washington, it was, um, there, were, there were those elements where, you know, the realization of what must it have felt like. And this is his biographers have all grappled with that uh, this realization that he and his wife couldn't have children, but she had had children with her previous husband. So it was obviously his fault, if you, you know, if you want to look at it in those terms. And putting that together with his, you know, he was a total Anglophile who wanted nothing more than to be given a commission in the British Army. And had they given him that, who knows how history would have turned out. Right, right. Um, but, you know, they wouldn't give it to colonials. So he ends up just being a an officer in the Virginia militia and working his way up that way. And then ultimately, of course, siding with the patriots. And there was a huge economic, uh, I guess you would say, emasculation uh, that the uh, colonists felt. People like Washington all over the colonies and the who uh, who were being kind of choked financially by the British, by, by all the strictures they were putting on them one after another. And I think, uh, you know, looking at it from the perspective, then when you switch and look at it from the perspective of George Dermain and others in London, you start to realize that it was kind of like one hand didn't necessarily know what the other hand was doing. You know, one group of people was issuing one set of, uh, sort of financial decrees about the colonies and later another group was issuing another and not seeing the, the the squeeze that this was putting on the colonies on the colonists so they're uh i mean not not to 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 excuse them but you see how complex that is but then you see the effects in a particular individual in someone like Washington
1: right and it's also just a result of each individual is seeing it from their own perspective and there there is no overall, uh, all embracive perspective, uh, you know, even of the historian. And in some ways it would be dangerous to think that, you know, oh, here, here comes the historian who could, who could make sense of everything because, you know, uh, he or she sees it all now. Um, But, but what you do is you say, well, let's maintain the separate perspectives of each individual, because that is what leads to the conflicts um, and uh, the sort of contingencies that, that end up becoming, you know, inevitable events. And so in some ways it's like a history through, through the whims of individuals at every level of the system, you know, showing kind of slip and slide into great events. And you have an eye towards sort of contingency and circumstance and, and personality. Um, so, so what, what is your feeling about, about the sort of, um, I don't want to say in inevitable and great, uh, uh, but, but those are the words that, you know, people associate with, say, Washington and the result of the revolution. But, you know, so many of these twists and turns in the plot are, are sort of accidents of time.
0: Yeah, and I think the important thing to do when you're writing history is try to stay with the in the moment because the people in the moment did not know that it would turn out in a certain way and therefore Washington would be seen as the father of his country, for example. Um, someone was just asking me recently about, well, what was something like, what would, you know, who would the people, who would those people be and what would the things be if you wrote that book right now? So, I mean, about this this moment in time. And I don't really know because we don't, I mean, we can pick six people, say, to who who, we, and write about them right now. Um, and that would be interesting, but history as a you know it, it, as something that you look back on and see it with a beginning, middle, and an end uh, has that kind of structure. But we don't know this crazy moment we're living in now what the structure is, which is why it's so kind of hair raising to live through. And and that was surely the case then. The I mean, when you think about it, the people who decided to, from all different backgrounds, who decided, yeah, we're going to fight against England, fight against everything we've known. While the war was going on, they, and this only occurred to me sort of in the middle of this, uh, they had no idea, you know, even if they won and they got everything they wanted, they had no idea what then. I mean, they didn't know, all right, we'll have a constitution eventually, we'll have a president. I mean, they didn't know any of that. All they knew was, okay, we'll fight against them. And, you know, people, so, so. Talk about, you know, just flying off into the unknown. It was really, uh, you, you just truly don't know what's around the bend. And, and I try to keep that in mind while I'm writing and not just, because then it kind of kills the thing. If you put that, you know, that blanket of like Washington will be great. So don't worry about it. Uh, if you lay that down over the text.
1: Right. It, 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 it makes it easier, as I said at the beginning for people to identify the people today, readers today to identify with these, with these, you know, big names, uh, so to speak, and to acknowledge that, that anything could happen at any moment in the present, that it, nothing is inevitable. You know, it, it things don't automatically get better or automatically get worse. Uh, and so in some ways, I felt like it, it's, it's inspiring to read uh, pe- about people's, you know, the, the, the whims and the accidents of, of, of people's lives, because it shows that the, the future is open, uh, the present is open. And, and so I'm wondering, I guess, how, how people have, uh, the book has only been out for a short while, but um, responded, I say audiences responded when you talk or who have read the book um, in terms of what they may have thought they knew about this period or these people
0: yeah the um what what i'm getting uh and it's only now really in the past week or so that i think the book's been out long enough and it's a pretty big book that people are coming to events who have read the whole thing and and you know or rather than just coming to hear me before they've read it uh and uh <clears throat> so i'm starting to hear people react to it as uh something that you can fall into and that you're just riding on these waves and and you're being moved from one to the next of these different people in their lives. And you're, you're, you're experiencing this from their different perspectives, this thing building, uh, meaning the meaning the the, the founding of a nation, Um, uh, which is, and, you know, that being that seems to be the way people are reacting to it, which is gratifying, because that's what I wanted, I didn't want it. And, and I think I was trying to kind of take advantage of the fact that people come to it with a little template. They know how it's going to end in, in, you know, one sense. Uh, so I don't have to do that. I can, even at the end, I don't have to say and it all ended happily ever after or anything like that. I just stop when the last one dies. Um, and, uh, and hope that that loose structure works because people can bring, uh, their own you know knowledge or or their own structure mental construct of the period uh to bear on it
1: right and it, it although it is a long book it actually reads quite swiftly because of the the narrative drive of it uh and i think that's one of its great strengths
0: and i i i made this decision early on that i i normally in earlier books i will i'll kind of weave in historiography i'll i'll Step back in the in the in the middle of the narrative and say, "Oh, and by the way, you know, we now know this about that person, but at the time they didn't." And and I'll you know talk it in, in different levels. Uh, but I made a determination that I would just start the thing, and we would just stay in story mode. And even things like you know how there, there, are, moment, there are things like, for example, um, Margaret Moncrief, uh, the the few people who have written about her in the past. Uh, take it uh, as read that she died in 1787 because there were obituaries in London papers uh, uh, announcing her death. Uh, And I knew that wasn't true because her memoir comes out in 1794 and it goes right up to 1794. She's still doing things. Uh, And so these people had said, well, somebody else must have published it and then they just filled in events or something, which didn't make any sense to me, but I, so I had this theory, you know, why, why those obituaries, I had these questions, why the obituaries then, and, and what's going on here, and slowly I puzzled out that, you know, I found one, then a second, then a third letter that she'd written after that period into the 1800s, um, and then I found through several trails, one of which is in the text of the memoir itself, That basically she faked her death because she was building up this mountain of debts in London, faked her death, and then shows up a couple months later in Paris and her life continues. Now, that backstory about me figuring this out is not in the text. That's in a footnote. So I made this determination that I'm just gonna, the text is just gonna tell the story. And if you, you know, for those who want that kind of the backstory. That's there as well. That's how I tried to do it.
1: Yeah, and I, I noticed that footnote, and I it, as as the story was written, as I was reading it, I it felt inevitable, um, or that this this, this something could happen that she that uh, that she could uh, astounding, but that okay, it's in line with her life that she would fake her death and and, and move to Paris. Um, and then at, later on, I was reading the footnote, and I thought, oh wow, okay, most people haven't assumed it that way. Um, and again, I think it just goes back with to what you're saying about listening to a life story and, 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 and trying to figure out emotionally, you know, the dynamics that are, that are driving it. But I also want to just go back briefly to what you said about not, not including kind of historiographic summaries in the text. Um, uh, you know, a paragraph, to, uh, there's a story, and then there's a paragraph about, you know, well, at this time you need to understand that blah, 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 blah. Um, and that you've, uh, And you say, just tell the story, but, but because of your knowledge and research and reading of the time period, the way you're telling the story and description, the descriptions of the characters contain the weight of the ideas of the time. So, you know, the historiography appears within, again, how people are trying to articulate themselves. And so it's very clear, you know, what's, what, what, uh, ideas are in the air, um, and and at the same time, maybe it doesn't really matter the debates about uh, academic debates in terms of, well, you can understand it this way or that way. If those ambivalences um, and you leave it open in so many ways with these characters, if those ambivalences are embedded in the storytelling itself. You know, it also reminds me of uh, the romantic historians of the 19th century, um, uh, you know, romantic historian being a sort of general term to describe how how history was written in the 19th century and before um, with, with, you know, sort of values of good and evil and a kind of moral imperatives. Um, but, but it was also an example of, of sort of embedding kind of the, the characteristics of an age in the, in the characters of the history, uh, itself. And I'm just wondering what, what your influences might be. Um, or if you have an eye towards how history has been written before.
0: Uh, I certainly have an eye toward how history is written in different ways, but I also don't, uh, you know, I don't have a model like I'm going to do this the way Barbara Tuckman did it or something like that. Um, I, uh, I did, you know, and and it's you're right to point out that while what I just said is true, that I've you know certain kind of chunks of information or reasoning, um, my reasoning, i put in footnotes. Other things. I uh, weave into the text or try to in a, in a kind of what I hope would be a seamless way uh, so that, for example, um, when I'm talking about young George Sackville as he was uh, for much of his life and then became Lord George Germain, when I'm talking about his education, I th- that's a moment where I can put in a couple of paragraphs about how a young British aristocrat would have learned about the world and England's place in the world and, and the, the developing sense of empire. Now I'm not literally giving, I'm not in the classroom with him at that moment, but I'm using that moment as a little aside to flesh out the worldview of someone like that. So those are ways that you can, uh, you know, stay with the character, but still add that.
1: Kind it would make perfect sense that not only that you gesture towards that at that moment, uh, for, for, to give us information, but because that's the information that George would have had at the time too. So again, yeah.
0: That's why I feel you can do it there because this is the kind of thing, but I'm also not saying this is precisely what he and, and what so, he so
1: he's George's character is complicated as every other character is. Um, but he's certainly a very willful, um, arrogant, uh, man. Um, and I was also thinking about uh, some of the portrayals of people who are not your focus, but, but, but do appear in the narrative more, more than, more than others or more than just mentions of other people. And one would be Alexander Hamilton, um, who, who sort of comes in towards the end or second half. And so I'm just, I, because people associate Hamilton in so many ways in popular culture now with the musical, um I'm just wondering how and, and Ron Chernow's biography of course um how you why you chose to sort of talk about Hamilton in the way you do which I I would admit is a kind of he's you present him as a sort of certainly an elitist but almost like a tyrant in his in his sort of maneuvering and manipulation
0: Um well I you Hamilton is in there more Hamilton's in there by association with my one of one or another of my six that's how most of these most secondary people are in the text and as it happens he's uh, closely associated with Washington of course so we see him with Washington but he's also he becomes closely associated with Abraham Yates and um, what I try to do is when I'm with one or another of these people um, I, I'm trying to be somewhat sympathetic seeing the world from their perspective, even with Germaine, who's kind of a natural, you know, heavy, <laughs> he's a kind of a natural bad guy just cause he's so blustering and such a figure of empire and all of that. Um, and when, it, particularly with when I'm with Yates, Yates becomes this, you know, he's from, from birth seemingly, he's this anti elitist. Man of the people, man of the streets he's the ninth child of a blacksmith he there doesn't he's he's so low on the order that he, there's not even room at his father's you know bat, blacksmith shop for him by the time he because he has four older brothers so he's sent off to apprentice with a shoemaker so he becomes a shoemaker by trade and yet he he he's really smart and he's uh, he sees this inequality in the world around him and he's got this thing against the elites and so he begins to teach himself the law and he runs for a, a low office in city government and work, starts working his way up. And uh, so he keeps that mentality, that man of the people. And, and, we, and, and after the revolution, he then turns on the other, the revolutionary leaders in a sense, because they start in his mind, they start to take on. These features of the British elite that they just overthrew. So he's, you know, he represents, in a way, this, this real class struggle that was going on in the period as well. And he's a New Yorker, and Hamilton is a New Yorker. So while all this is going on, the New York, you know, each state has its, its group of leaders and they are maneuvering with each other. And he sees Hamilton as someone who, like him, is very low-born has ought not to have any pretensions to being, you know, a big uh, muckety-muck. Um, and yet he does. And Hamilton, not only that, Hamilton sort of forces himself in front of Yates time and again. Hamilton marry, comes to Albany, which is Yates's territory, marries into the Schuyler family, which is the great aristocratic family, and, you know, basically right in front of Yates, kind of rubbing his nose in it. And so to Yeats, Hamilton is just, you know, uh, not content with his station, or not content with being proud of being just a humble person, but has to put on airs. So that's why you know I'm giving that perspective of, of Hamilton because that's that's that was Yates's perspective,
1: right? It it uh, it makes perfect sense from from Yeats's perspective that Hamilton was you know an elitist or, or a tyrant in, in, in regards to Yates's worldview or sense of self, um, and it also makes me think that. You know, if well, someone asks, well, yeah, but who would who was Hamilton really? There's no, there's no such thing as as any, any one of these people really, because they're always only in dialogue, conversation, conflict with other people, and so well, you'd have to say, well, who was Hamilton to Yates in that moment, and then that's what's actually interesting.
0: <laughs> and you know, then and you know, what I, I hope you get a little of that dynamic because earlier you see who Hamilton was to Washington when he was this young officer in Washington's staff with whom Washington had this complicated relationship. And, and Hamilton and Washington, I think had a more naive view of the relationship. He had the, he saw Hamilton as this star and, and this rising star and this, and, and he was happy to have him and to use him and, and, for, and, and his energy and, and, and Hamilton meanwhile had this burning ambition and he felt it wasn't being fulfilled under Washington. He was being held back. And that erupts into this kind of famous uh, uh, fight or struggle that they get into that Washington takes Washington completely unawares. And it's, there's this father-son dynamic between the two of them. So that's a completely different Hamilton that you're getting there because you're looking at him at him through somebody else's eyes.
1: The, there's no cohesive uh, uh, description of someone over time, um, and and also that this idea that there is a really there's a version of someone really is a, is a fiction, even though we may say with say Germain uh, George Germain that he's kind of like quintessential, you could say not a nice guy, or we we might not align morally with him, but but even then, you 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 create great sympathy for him, but but I have to say there's the question of slavery. And, um, and how it's so easy for people to say today, well, obviously slavery is wrong. And, and these, these people were, were, were wrong for having slaves. And, and there's, you know, there's been a lot of work trying to complicate that, you know, how, well, how did you, how did they see it from, from their end and all that? So what are your thoughts? And you, you gesture towards the question of slavery by saying it, it, there was an inconsistency in people's understanding or, inc- or of the inclusivity of the idea of freedom. What are your thoughts about um the prevalence of slavery and the founders and and how you wove it and did not weave it into into their stories?
0: Well, that gets to the you know it, 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 at a very you know basic sense, slavery is one element of uh, you know when the country this when this big, messy thing happened and this they cobbled this together, this country. Um, you know, things happen in the real world and in real time. And you you could write, and people did write, histories in which the end result was this glorious, you know, uh, inevitable, God-given thing, the United States. Um, but in reality, it was cobbled together with this, with a series of dif- of, of, of internal flaws and inconsistencies that were... Paved over, um, and slavery was one of the, and attitudes toward it was one of those things. And to just say, okay, we're going to march forward, and and yeah, we've got a little problem here and there with this freedom notion, but you know we're marching forward, and we're a country. That does that problem didn't go away, and and it has been with us ever since. I mean, the Civil War, the Civil Rights Movement, what's going on today? I mean, these issues, the the fissures in the country today, go all the way back to the beginning, and. The Civil War. Okay, the the Union wins. Well, they didn't deal with it. They still didn't deal with it. Reconstruction was just putting band-aids on it, and and they essentially turned their backs and allowed the South to to kind of recreate slavery in it in in, in all but name. Uh, and 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 I think we're still still dealing with those uh, deeply problematic things that were there at the founding.
1: Right, and it your gestures to the inconsistencies in people's you know ideas of freedom um are are crucial i think to the the emotional dynamics as well so it's not simply to say well that has not been dealt with um but not dealing with it was somehow central to people's sense of self um and that the sort of uh, and it, you to see it with slavery Obviously, is the major example across American history, but but also the treatment of any number of of uh, oppressed or minority people, um, indigenous people. Um, but also, you know, t- in today you see it with with class uh, conflict. Um, that there's there's some. It's not simply oh that person hasn't thought about it or that needs to be taken care of. Well, of, of course it needs to be thought about and addressed. Um, but that not addressing it is actually crucial to their. To their sense of being in the world i mean the idea of a slave uh having a slave could shore shore up your masculinity or your sense of self um and so intellectually it's a problem well they're enslaved and this other their master is free but the free you know well what is it? Edmund Morgan, who wrote "American uh, Slavery, American Freedom," a, a great classic of, of, of academic uh, history. That 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 it's slavery that that gives us our understanding of freedom very early on, and how one person's freedom was another was another person's um, enslavement. The
0: uh, yeah, the whole project is. Uh, I mean, it, as I say, it happens. These things happen in real time, and. And in a in in a world filled with imperfections, and people choose to. I mean, famously, Lafayette. I mean, there were people who thought they were fighting for freedom, and once they got it, that meant freedom for everybody. And Lafayette, famously, uh, after afterwards, says, "Well, if I had known that I was fighting for a system that would perpetuate slavery, I would never have lifted my sword in it." So. Uh, People had all different kinds of ideas about what they were doing as well, which gets back to my point about, um, you know, they were just marching forward into this without really knowing what the outcome was going to be and then fighting over that. And then you have the whole period uh, 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 under the Articles of Confederation where they slowly start to come to the next realization, which is we have to, you know, form this federal system. And that's the only way this is going to hold together. But, and that's what, you know, uh, where I first truly came to understand the perspective of uh, the anti-federalists through, through Yates and this notion that, you know, wait a second, you, I mean, Yates, he, he, When they went to meet, you know, first they were going to meet in secret, all we're going to do is, you know, fix up this, the Articles of Confederation. He didn't believe it. He said, they're meeting in secret, they're going to try to, you know, foist some new tyrannical federal government on us. And he was, I mean, (laughs) you could debate the tyrannical part, but he was right about what they were doing. And when he saw a draft of the Constitution, he hated the first three words we the people. Because, you know, he said with these group of elite men meeting in secret, they come out of their room and they decide they represent the people. How dare they? You know, so looked at from that perspective, you can see that that. And again, this is a thing all through American history that certain people would say, you, aren't, you do not represent me. You don't speak for me.
1: Right. And the question also being, why is it for Yates a problem and not a problem for the people in the room where it happened, so to speak? And I, I again, to, to tr- understand it from any individual's perspective, changes the terms in which you're calculating what is quote unquote right and wrong. Um, I'm also wondering as we, as we come to the end of our conversation about your use of the word song. in the, in the, in the the title. And, um, uh, I, I I would guess, and I, I, and I want to hear your thoughts first, that it has something to do with the interweaving of multiple voices.
0: Yeah, I mentioned it, you, it probably went right by you, but right in the, the beginning, I said, uh, I say something about, uh, you know, it, it occurred to me from the beginning that, uh, of thinking about this, that this was like these different voices all singing different parts of the same song and that was one way of relating referring to the structure this which to me and the whole structure you know to go back to where we started coming up with this idea of people from very different walks of life who by definition are in different places and trying to you know pull their stories together without pulling too hard without forcing it I felt like I was kind of going out on a limb in deciding, okay, I'll do that. I'll write such a book. And the whole time I was writing it, I was saying, does this work? Does this work? And I'm still saying, you know, I kind of go up to, you know, people who come to the uh, events to hear me talk about it, who've read the book and say, well, does it work? Um, uh, Because that's, you know, that song is, is the thing. That's what I was trying to do. And it was something different from what I've done in other books and, you know, it's a bit of a risk, but, um, I felt, obviously I felt strong enough about it that I thought it was at least worth taking the risk.
1: Right. And I, and I, 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 come back to it, um, because I think it's more complicated than simply saying all these voices are singing the same song in that, in that there, there are commonalities, but, but they hear it differently. They, they feel it differently. Uh, they're, they're too, they're, um, parts within the song sit in um, sort of contrapuntal relationship with, with others, right? It's not, it's not a, it's not unison. It's not one song that we're all singing, you know, the same exact notes. And I think that is actually the power of the song. I mean, you know, that, that, that when you begin to notice people singing different parts that, that, that may at one point, kind of, uh, introduce some disjunction. Um, and then another point they resolve. And then there's another, there's another, uh, disharmony, so to speak, and then a resolution, but it's not ever a full resolution. As you say, we're still, we're still dealing with a lot of the problems of the revolution. Um, we're still fighting the revolution so that we're still, the song is ongoing that we're, it's almost singing. The song is a, is a trying to get to some, some ultimate harmony, some ultimate unity that, that may not actually exist.
0: I, I wish I had thought of that. <laughs> that, that that's a really nice uh, observation. I think there's, there's a lot in that, and I, it would be wonderful if that's the way people are reading the book because it's, uh, you know, it is truly an ongoing thing, and these voices are not all singing in harmony with each other, and that's, that's the real thing. I mean, that's the real that's what history is history is uh this uh confounding conflicting set of forces and vectors and and it's the job of someone who wants to write a book you know the 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 the, the somewhat artificial thing is a book is supposed it's a it's i have i think a book ought to be a, or or ought to uh uh strive to be a work of art um and that means Having a structure, having a beginning, a middle, and an end, and feeling complete and feeling like it has a sense of closure, but there's a certain artificiality about that too.
1: Yeah, actually, when you say work of art, it also reminds me another way I was thinking about the book is as a as a history painting, and and you know these classic American history paintings um, that uh, depict say one battle or the lead up to a battle and the culmination of a battle, but you're seeing multiple moments of that battle in
0: well the one the history painting that's on the cover of the book is the one done in uh 1850 i think of, of washington crossing the delaware uh and that's a total construct i mean it has all these the reason i thought it was kind of fun for the cover is it's got all these different people from different backgrounds different skin colors and all that um on all striving together in this boat and the way the the publisher did it was they put you, you, normally you see Washington front and center he's standing in the front of the boat, but here Washington is actually on the back cover, so the others on the on the front but that that painting is what you're saying it's not that that's not a historical historically accurate depiction of the
1: event yes, but it, it, it attempts at some kind of cohesive fiction uh, you know but there are many other American history paintings where you actually see multiple Uh, Events in 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 the same frame, Um, and and I think and that's how I take your book as as a whole. But that you can't you can't um, uh, have a perspective that that encompasses them all. You can't think for everyone yourself, but you can at any one moment stand within the painting at a particular point at in the canvas and feel it to be three dimensional. And that, in that, in that, as soon as you act as if, well, there's only one view, and here's how to bring it together, then, then you're in danger of sort of furthering a fiction, creating a world in your own likeness, which is, you know, sort of a, a general conflict of, for many of these characters.
0: And you have to give, uh, you have to assume a certain level of sophistication on the part of the reader, or in your analogy, the a, a, a viewer of a painting that they understand th- what, what this painting is doing and that they're able to, to kind of work with its storytelling structure. And that's, uh, I think, what, what I'm doing and probably what, what any writer of uh, history is doing too. You're assuming certain things on the reader's part. We're working, this isn't just me, we're, we're doing this together.
1: Right, and I, and I also have to say that it you know, reminds me of those opening words of, of the Iliad, you know, wrath, goddess, sing of Achilles, calamitous wrath. And and how how songs can can you know sort of be the drivers of 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 stories of men or heroes striving to be gods, um, but also that music offers us a more complicated understanding of 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 humanity with with multiple voices and multiple characters, and 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 the word song contains contains both ideas you know striving with and against each other.
0: You're the second person in two days to to refer to the Iliad as the in in relation to that word song in the title. So that was inter- that's interesting. I hadn't hadn't thought of it before, but it must there must be some resonance,
1: definitely for me. And and uh, uh, the the, the art, art of the of the book as a whole, I, I feel uh, resonated for me. And I think that that again, it's one of one of the great strengths um, as a narrative historian uh, that that you can that uh, there's an art. Uh, to history. And it's intimately connected with making us feel something of the past in the present. And and with that, I want to thank uh, Russell Shorto for joining us uh, today. Uh, his new book is called American Freedom. I'm sorry, <laughs> Revolution Song, A Story of American Freedom. Certainly, that was the idea that stuck out to me. Revolution Song, A Story of American Freedom, just out from Norton. Uh, Russell, again, thank you for your time.
0: Michael, thank you. It's been a pleasure.